Well, good morning. My name is Bobby. Everyone say hi, Bobby. You are so friendly. You are so friendly. I love that we're in this, we're starting a new teaching today called Sermon on the Mountain. And a lot of times, I saw the first hour, that whenever we have a teaching series, we usually try to come up with a clever name that captures the essence of what the teaching's about. But this time we're like, hey, what does the Bible actually say when you turn to Matthew 5? It says the Sermon on the Mount. When you look it up in the Bible app, what does it say? It says the Sermon on the Mount. So we thought we'd get really clever with this series and call it the Sermon on the Mount. And so I'm glad you're part of today. As we get ready to dive in, I do want to tell you about a couple of things that Zach sort of teased for us. One is that tonight is our Path Project fundraising dinner. Many of you know about the Path Project. We absolutely love our partnership and we love our friends over in Peachtree Village. And so tonight at six o'clock, we are uh, gathering together. Our prayer really is to help raise a little over $40,000 to come alongside what's already built into our budget to fully fund them for, for another year. And we've got a lot of people that have already registered, but if you'd like to be part of tonight, even if it's just to hear the vision and the update, Swing by Path Project's website. I believe it's pathproject.org and you'll find a place that you can sign up and be part of tonight. It's gonna be so fun. Also, I wanted to give you a quick update. Many of you that have been around here know about Imagine Zero. A little over a year ago, we began to dream together as a church to say what would happen if instead of making ministry decisions based on cash flow, we can make more ministry decisions based on what is God's heart for our community and what is God's heart for our world. And so about nine or 10 years ago, our church's debt level was about $8.2 million. Now I'm super grateful uh, for this building and these facilities that we get to call home. But what we found is that that level of debt over the years made a lot of cash flow decisions for us. And so now about nine years later, our debt level has gone down drastically from 8.2 to just under $3.8 million, which we believe is pretty amazing. And so our heartbeat really is to say, what would happen if we could get to zero even faster because we could say yes to so much more. And so a little over a year ago, I was, sorry, I was doing the numbers in my head. I was like, this is dangerous on a Sunday morning to do, do numbers that aren't in your notes. But uh, our prayer has been, what would happen if we could accelerate getting out of debt so that we could do more ministry, more missions, more things like Path Project, more things like reaching more students in our community, more things like planting other churches, more things like making a difference of what God wants us to do. And and so part, there's two pieces of that. One is our church, as a family said, we're going to help, we're going to commit to, uh, to give above and beyond our normal giving so that we can help put that straight towards debt reduction. And the second piece of that is we have some extra land that's undeveloped. And we've had developers over the years begin to ask us, what would happen if would y'all sell that? And so we have had several developers approach us and we've got several things in the works, but honestly, it's not going as fast as we had prayed or hoped for. And so I just wanted to give you a quick update to, to say that it, it's not if we're going to get out of debt, it's just when, and it's how fast we're able to do that so that we can do more. And so I just want to invite you to pray for that and to be part of that. Well, this morning, we're going to dive right into a brand new teaching series that is called the Sermon on the Mount. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and be finding uh, Matthew chapter five, or if you have the Bible app, I'm going to invite you to follow along as well. Uh, the reason why this is called the Sermon on the Mount is because Jesus taught it on the side of a uh, mountain. And it's probably the most famous sermon that Jesus ever preached. It's found in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And there's pieces of it found in the other gospels as well. One person asked a preacher years ago and said, if Jesus' sermon was only about 15 or 20 minutes long, how come you have to preach for 30 or 35 minutes? 
I thought that was a pretty good question. <laughs> what you find in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is not the word-for-word -word version of his sermon, but what you find is this distilled version of the sermon that, that really begins to uh, get at the heart of Jesus' teaching, gets at the heart of Jesus' teaching. And so what he does is he talks about what does it look like to live on earth like it is in heaven? What does it look like to be part of his kingdom? What does it look like to live his life on this earth? And so what he begins to do in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 is he begins to tell us a different way to live. There's a lot of verses in 5, 6, and 7 that probably sound familiar to you. He opens with what we call the Beatitudes. He opens with what we call the Beatitudes, blessed are those. And then he goes into talking about what does it mean to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world? And then he talks about love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And then later in the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about how to pray our Father who art in heaven, how would be thy name. And then later he talks about don't be anxious about anything. And then about prayer, he says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. And it's within this sermon that he talks about the golden rule where he talks about whatever we wish others would do for us, we should do for them. And then he closes out by talking about the house that's built on the rock. And so there's so many important teachings with than the Sermon on the Mount that we wanted to focus in on it over the next couple weeks. And so I'm thrilled that you're part of the kickoff. Today, what I want to do is I want to set up the series. Today, I want to sort of introduce it by looking at the first 10 verses in Matthew chapter 5. It's what we call the Beatitudes. Here's what it says in Matthew 5, starting in verse 1. It says, And seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So all these people show up and they're showing up to listen to him. And listen to what it says in verse two. And he opened his mouth and he taught them saying, verse three, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. And what you begin to see over and over again is Jesus talks about the blessable life. He talks about the good life. Now, I just got to be honest, whenever I read verses like this and it talks about blessings and it talks about the blessed, my mind automatically goes back to when I was a middle schooler at my home church. I don't know if you remember, if you were part of church when you were in middle school, but there's so many funny things I remember about church. In fact, uh, I grew up going to church and one of the things that, that happened uh, when I was in middle school and high school is my pastor's wife, Miss Betty Scott, was one of these people that always walked around blessing the people around them. You know what I'm talking about? She was the kind of person that would say, well, bless your heart. Do you know somebody like that? And so my pastor and his wife, they were at our church for 30 years. And so over the years, she had blessed so many. She, she had said that so often in the hallways, bless your heart, bless your heart, bless your heart. What happened over time is all the other ladies in the church got in a bless your heart competition. Do you know what I'm talking about? They'd be in the hallways for minutes. They'd be like, well, bless your heart. No, bless your heart for blessing my heart. No, bless your heart for blessing my heart. And so here's what I found as an adult, though, is that that phrase, bless your heart, actually has a hidden meaning. Have y'all heard this before? Anytime there's a word or a phrase that gets repeated over and over and over again, it has a hidden meaning. I looked it up. Here's a couple of the meanings for the phrase, bless your heart. One is, I don't care, but I feel like I should. So bless your heart. One version of it is you're pitiful, but you don't know it, so bless your heart. One version is I'm praying for you, so bless your heart. Or where I grew up in Mississippi, it means can I bring you a casserole, bless your 
heart because everything's good with a casserole. But here's the, my favorite one that I think is probably more true than I care to admit is uh, when somebody says, bless your heart, what they're actually saying is you're such an idiot. <laughs> think about that the next time somebody uses it. Hey, I got lost in 285. I didn't know where the exit was. Bless your heart. I didn't realize, I don't know if that's a good amen point or not there, Cliff, but I'll take it. I didn't realize the blender was turned on when I put my hand in it. Bless your heart. So Monday morning, you can say that to somebody that gets on your nerves and you can be like, bless your heart. They're like, really, do you mean it? It's like, no, no, I really mean it. Bless your heart. Well, when Jesus is talking about blessings, he's not talking about some hidden meaning. In fact, what Jesus is doing is he's describing a blessable life. He's describing the kind of life that's what I call the good life, the kind of life that I think every single one of us wants, we desire. There's this thing inside of us. And so if you're a note taker today, what I want to do is I want to put on sort of the teacher hat today and sort of teach you a couple of concepts around us. I know there's some weeks that we preach and it's more motivational. In fact, I love that about Pastor Chuck, man. We get fired up, ready to go and make a difference. Today, I just want to slow down a little bit and just sort of teach a few things. And so if you're the kind of person that likes taking notes and you like points, this is your day, I'm going to try to give you some ideas about this busable life. And the first thing that I want to point out about it is number one, if we want to have this kind of life, if we want to have the good life, the blessable life, then number one, we must recognize the authority of Jesus. In other words, we have to answer the question, who is Jesus in your life? Who's Jesus in my life? Is he just another guy? Is he just another teacher? Is he just somebody that gives us some, some helpful little platitudes here? I mean, what, what kind of person is Jesus? And what happens in these verses is it reminds us that it comes down to his authority. In fact, here's, what it, here's how the Sermon on the Mount starts. In chapter 5, verse 1, it says, and seeing the crowd. So Jesus sees the crowd. He sees the people. And it says, and he went up on the mountain. And mountains in Scripture are really important. We don't have time to dive into that this morning, but it says, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. What Jesus is doing is he's taking the posture of somebody in authority. He's taking the posture of somebody that, 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 that's a teacher. He's taking the posture of somebody that has something to say. To say that he sat down means that he's taking this place of authority. And I wish I could show you all the instances of this, but one of the things that's super helpful whenever you dive into scripture is to ask the question, what's the context of this passage? See, context is so important. Chances are you've overheard a conversation before that you had no idea what came before the conversation or what came after it. You heard a snippet and that snippet was like, huh, what in the world are they talking? Have you been part of that before? You're like, you overheard something. You're like, what in the world are they talking about? That's what happens when we don't get the context. Well, the Bible has context. What that means is when you pick out a verse, you need to look at the verse that comes before it and the verse that comes after it. Or when you look at a chapter, you need to look at the chapter that comes before it or the chapter that comes after it. Or when you look at a chapter, you need to look at the book that it's part of because that all helps us understand the context. And so let me give you an example of this. In our Bibles, we have four gospels. We call them the gospel of Matthew, Mark, 
Luke, and John. And each of them has a purpose. Each of them has a focus as to why they wrote it. For instance, Mark is the shortest of the four gospels. Most people think that Mark was the first person to write it all down. And when Mark was writing, he wasn't writing just to everybody, though we benefit from it. Mark was writing to a specific group of people. He was writing to Christians in the early church that were being persecuted in Rome. That's who he's writing to. He's writing to Christians who are undergoing extreme persecution for their faith. And so when Mark writes, he writes with that background to say, Jesus was the one that suffered for us. Jesus is the one that is alive today. You put your faith in the right person. That's the context of the gospel of Mark. Or take Luke, for instance. Luke was written by a doctor. So doctor, very detail-oriented, wanted to get everything just right. And so what Luke did is he interviewed all the eyewitnesses, people that were around Jesus through his life, his death, and his resurrection. And so he wrote down carefully everything that he heard, that he saw, so that he could tell about Jesus to one of his friends. And so when Luke writes, that's why he's writing. He's writing to a friend. He's saying, hey, here are the things that I've heard and seen and experienced. That's the context of Luke. John, John was the closest earthly friend of Jesus. When Jesus was on this earth, John was the closest to him, earthly speaking. And so when John writes, he doesn't write uh, right after Jesus goes back to heaven. In fact, John waits until he's old and gray. He's been exiled to an island called Patmos. He's waiting his death. And so when John writes his gospel, he has had years to reflect on it. He's had years to think about it. And so when he writes down what Jesus did, he doesn't just write down what he did, but he writes down the significance as to what it actually meant. Does that make sense to you that he's reflected on the significance of those events? So when John writes, he writes less about the, the tactical details and he writes more about the big picture theology. That's the context of Mark, shortest one, written to people in persecution. Luke, uh, detailed, writing to his buddy, trying to convince them of who Jesus is. John reflecting as an old man back on what happened in the life of Jesus. And then when you get to Matthew, Matthew is writing to Jewish people. And the thing that Jewish people were waiting for is they were waiting for a Messiah. They were waiting for somebody that was gonna come from the lineage of David. They were looking for somebody that would be the, the, the king of the Jews. And so when Matthew writes, that's the audience he's writing to. He's writing to Jewish people that have heard that the Messiah is gonna come one day. They've heard one day God's gonna send uh, the Messiah to this earth. And so when Matthew writes, he's trying to convince them of who Jesus is. That's why in Matthew chapter one, if you look at it, it has a list of names. Sometimes people ask the question, why does the Bible have so-and-so beget so-and-so and so-and-so beget so-and-so, so-and-so beget so-and-so. The reason why Matthew does that in Matthew chapter one is because he draws the line of Jesus and says, remember back when God said to Adam that one day he was going to crush the enemy? And then he fast forwards and he says, remember when God said to Abraham one day, I'm gonna bless all the nations. And then you fast forward and God said to David, one day you're gonna have a descendant that sits on the throne. Matthew chapter one traces that whole lineage all the way up to guess who? To Jesus. And so Matthew's gospel is all about the authority of Jesus, that he's the guy, that he's God on this earth and that he's the one we should put our faith in. And so I wanted to start there because if we're gonna talk about this blessable life, if we're gonna talk about this good life, the only place that it starts is we come to this moment to recognize that Jesus isn't just another guy, that he's not just a story, that he's not just some good teacher, that he's God himself, and he's the only one that can forgive us of our sins and give us a brand new start. It starts with his authority. So when Jesus teaches, that's where he starts with. 
When Jesus, in fact, in Matthew, he opens with the authority of Jesus. In fact, in Matthew 28, he closes with the authority of Jesus, where Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, all the people, after they hear Jesus teach, they look around and say, he teaches with authority. And so that's where we start, is recognizing the authority of Jesus. And I, I, I got to tell you, this is a big deal. I, I told you a little bit that I grew up in church, and I absolutely loved that I was able to grow up uh, in church. But here's the truth. Uh, when I was real little, so I was born in Montgomery, Alabama. And so we went to a little Presbyterian church uh, when I was in, in preschool. Honestly, I don't remember much about the church, but here's what I do remember is every Sunday in preschool, they served two things. They served jungle juice and the cookies with the holes in the center. Because every Sunday I'd put them on my fingers like rings. So I had like cookie bling every Sunday morning. You know what I'm talking about? And so I, I, that, that's about all I remember. And then later, I have an older brother. So when he got to be youth age, we changed churches to a church that was closer to our house so he could be part of the youth group. I don't remember much about that church except it was the Methodist church. And two things I do remember about it. One is every time the worship pastor uh, asked us to sing a song, he would say, turn in your hymnals to hymn number 325. But as a kid, I didn't know the word hymnal. I thought he was saying, turn in your hippos. So I thought that, that's strange, that's weird. And then the second thing I remember is I would fall asleep during church. None of y'all would do that, would you? Yeah, I would fall asleep during church, hopefully not during this sermon. I would fall asleep during church and wake up to my brother dangling his chewed up, slimy, big red gum in my ear. That's just so, I still remember that. I'm like scarred. I need to talk to a counselor about that. So that's, so that's where I remember preschool, elementary. And then we finally, uh, we moved because my dad's job to Mississippi. We visited a lot of churches, but we, or we were going to visit a lot of churches, but the first church we went to became our church home. It's similar to Sugar Hill Church where we're not perfect. They didn't have it all together, but man, you felt loved and you got to experience God. And I'll never forget, there was a Sunday morning that my pastor, PJ Scott was preaching and he talked about John three sixteen that God so loved the world. And he said, when God loved, he loved the whole world. And when he gave, he gave his only son so that anyone, whosoever would believe in him would have everlasting life. And he's like, you're whosoever, I'm whosoever. And what happened in my life that Sunday was I recognized I've been to church, but my heart had never been changed. Y'all tracking with me? I knew about God, but I didn't know him. And that Sunday morning, I walked down the aisle and talked to the pastor. He came by my house that afternoon and I'll never forget him walking me through the steps of settling the authority of Jesus, asking him to step out of heaven into my heart to change me from the inside out. Has my life been perfect? Absolutely not. Are there still areas in my life that I'm struggling? Of course there are. As long as we're breathing, God's not done with us. But here's what I settled early on was who is Jesus to me? And my life has never been the same. And so this is where it starts. This is sort of the foundation of the whole Sermon on the Mount. If we're going to talk about the blessable life, the good life, we've got to recognize his authority. Then the second thing, number two, is we need to begin to rethink our assumptions. We've got to rethink our assumptions. So when we think about this idea of the blessable life, or we think about this idea of the good life, often what comes to our mind are earthly things. What, what does the blessable life look like? Does it mean I'm more courageous? Does it mean I'm wiser than the people around me? Does it mean I'm agreeable, that I'm funny, intellectual, attractive, fit, rich? Does it mean I have the biggest house? Does it mean that I've worked my way up the ladder? In our world, we have sort of some assumptions about a blessed life. In fact, if you search the hashtag on Instagram, hashtag bless, you'll find a lot of people with a lot of different ideas of what the blessed life looks like? Is it another vacation? Is it another car? Is it another thing? And what happens in the Sermon on the Mount, which makes it so 
arresting to us is that Jesus takes our earthly assumptions and he turns them upside down. In fact, if you're a note taker, let me just give you three things to look for as we walk through these. When Jesus talks about the blessed life, what I think you'll find is you'll think, I think you'll find the theme of brokenness. You'll find the theme of delayed gratification. And you'll find the theme of surrender. These three descriptions go totally against what we normally assume in our earthly state. When you start thinking about brokenness, that's not what we normally think of when we think of a blessed life. When we think about delayed gratification, nobody signs up for that. We want everything now and we want it faster. And if it takes more than 30 seconds, we have a fit and we go off. And we don't think about surrender, but listen to these teachings of Jesus. Listen to these beatitudes, these descriptions that Jesus gives us. Let's just walk through these together. The first one is found in verse three. Listen to what Jesus says. Blessed are the, do you see this phrase? The poor in spirit. Most of the time, our earthly assumption is, if I'm blessed, then I've got it all together. If I'm blessed, then I've got abundance. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. The people that are truly blessed and part of the kingdom of heaven are people that are poor in spirit. Well, what does he mean by that? To mean poor in spirit literally means that we realize that we're spiritually bankrupt. To be poor in spirit means that we realize that we literally have nothing of our own that earns our way into right standing with God. That all the earthly stuff that we think is so important, we start thinking about wealth and we start thinking about fancy jobs and we start thinking about all of our good works. This idea of being poor in spirit realizes that none of those things earn our way into his kingdom. Instead, to be poor in spirit means that we're heartbroken over our spiritual state. It means that we realize that we are desperate for God. That God, if you don't show up in my life, God, if you don't answer this prayer, God, if you don't do a work inside of me, I have nothing. This is what Jesus describes as a blessed life, to be poor in spirit, to realize I am totally dependent on God. Look at verse four. He doesn't stop there. These sort of flow in, in, a, in an order that I think makes sense. Verse four, he says, based on that, blessed are those who mourn. Now, again, this is totally upside down. Our assumptions are the blessed life is I'm happy all the time. We assume the blessed life is everything's always great. Sometimes we buy into this false belief that if I say yes to Jesus, then everything's gonna work out. There's not gonna be any problems. And then when problems come our way, if we're not careful, we get thrown off by that because we didn't expect it. But Jesus didn't teach that. He says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And so when Jesus talks about this, the people that mourn are the people that start broken. God, I'm empty. God, I don't have anything of my own that earns my way into your kingdom. And then based on that, God, I am brokenhearted over my sin. I'm mourning over my sin, the sin of the world around me, the disconnect between people and God. God, the things that break your heart are breaking my heart, and because of that, I mourn. This is what Jesus describes. I'm telling you, he turns it upside down. He doesn't stop there, though. Verse 5, it naturally leads to this. It says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. People that are meek 
are people that understand and they feel the need for God in their life. And so these are people that aren't trying to work their way up the ladder. They're not the people that are cocky and arrogant. They're not the people that act like they're in charge. In fact, this again is an upside down kind of thinking. This is what makes Jesus' teaching so troublesome to the people around him because most people thought, well, my job is to work my way up the ladder. My job is to be a person in authority. My job is to look like I've got all the titles and got it all together. And yet Jesus turns it upside down and says, no, 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 no. Not blessed are the powerful, not blessed are the people that act like they have it together, but blessed are the people that are meek. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is taking power and having it under self-control. Sort of like the picture of a strong stallion, a stallion that is so strong and could charge ahead with so much strength, but you put that little, bridle, that little bit in its mouth and suddenly just a little turn of the harnesses begin to, to, to move that power, its power under control. And so what you begin to see as these stack up is these are all coming from a place of brokenness. Not brokenness as in you're not usable, but brokenness saying, God, I'm dependent on you. God, I absolutely need you. And because I need you, God, I mourn over the things that break your heart. And God, I am meek. I'm somebody that's gentle. I'm somebody that's humble. God, I'm unassuming. I'm willing to serve. A person that's meek is someone that handles their power with care. And then he goes on, look at verse six. In verse six, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Righteousness comes from faith alone, in Jesus alone. It means to be right with God. And so as Jesus is talking about this good life, this blessable life, he's saying the people that are truly blessed are those that have a hunger and they have a thirst, not for the latest thing, not for the latest gadget, not for the, the latest earthly thing, but they are seeking after right standing with God. And then he says, for they're the ones that will be satisfied. Verse seven goes on to say, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. The people that are merciful are the people that forgive other people of their transgressions. People that are merciful are the people that keep a short sin list of other people. The world says, man, you've got to be careful. Don't forgive too many people around you. They might hurt you again. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Blessed are those that extend mercy for they shall receive it in return. Look what he goes on to say in verse eight. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. In other words, the pure in heart are people that don't have cluttered hearts. They don't, they don't say one minute, God, I love you, and the next minute, God, I love all this other stuff around me. The pure in heart are the people that have postured themselves to say, God, I wanna simplify my life. I wanna simplify my, my, my journey, and I want to see you. And they are the ones that get to see God. Verse nine, blessed are the peacemakers. The peacemakers are the people that help bring reconciliation. They're the ones that, that, that are the voice of reason, of calmness, that help bring reconciliation between people and between nations and between God and others. He says, for they shall be called the sons of God. And then in verse 10, he said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is a big deal. 
Jesus turns all of this upside down. And so here's those three themes again. The first theme is brokenness. Over and over again in these verses, you hear Jesus saying, look, you've got to be dependent on God. You've got to rely on him. You've got to put all of your weight and strength on him. This idea of delayed obedience, this delayed gratification, this is a big deal because Jesus says to them, yes, the kingdom is here, but yet there's still something in the future. That's why he says, they shall be called the sons of God. They shall see God. They shall receive mercy. So there's something now, but there's something not yet. There's, some, there's a payoff in the moment, but yet there's a future something coming. And then ultimately, it's about being surrendered. The first four verses of the Beatitudes really talk about our dependence on God. And then the last four talk about our connection with God and other people, a surrendered life. Now, I just want to hit pause for a second. That's a lot of, a lot of content to absorb in just a second. But one of the things that I want you just to think about, just maybe an application point that you want to look back on later this week is to look at this list of eight Beatitudes and just sort of assess yourself. To ask this question, man, do, I, do these things describe my life? Is my life described by brokenness, my dependence on God? Is my life described by delayed gratification that I, that I see a bigger picture out there and I'm willing to delay some earthly gratification while I'm on this earth, a surrendered life? What I found is online, there's all kinds of assessments. There's personality assessments. If you've been hired at a job recently, most hiring agents will send you through assessments. There, there's even silly ones on social media. Some of the silly ones lately is which Disney character are you? And it's like, you've seen those a few years ago, there was the picture of the dress and everybody was asking, what color do you see? Is it blue and gold? I forget what the colors were, but did, yeah, right? there's all of these assessments. Well, on a serious level, if we were to assess ourselves, do we have these attitudes in us that Jesus is saying we ought to have? Because here's the thing that Jesus is teaching. He's teaching, this is what it looks like to be a member of my kingdom. This is what it looks like to be a part of my movement and my involvement. And it's not what we on this earth normally look for. Jesus says it looks totally different. So let's not kid ourselves. So number one, recognize his authority. Number two, begin to rethink, begin to reanalyze our assumptions. And finally, number three, to respond with action. To respond with action. I told you my goal today was to set up this teaching series because we're going to be in the Sermon on the Mount for several weeks now. And one of the things that you begin to see through the Sermon on the Mount is that when Jesus taught, he didn't teach primarily just for information, though information is helpful. He didn't teach for it just to stop in our heads. But the goal of Jesus was that whatever we learn and whatever we teach and whatever we, we download in our lives, it would drop out of our heads and into our hearts, and we'd live differently because of it. That's the goal. The goal is to begin to live out this ethic of the kingdom. The goal is to live out this blessable life. And so on the car ride here this morning, I started thinking about, well, who are the people that I know live from a place of brokenness? And who are the people that I know that live with this sense of delayed gratification? And who are the people I know that live a surrendered life? And there are several people that came to mind. There's some, some faces that came to mind. But when I pulled into the parking lot, the thing that I realized is that the one person that did this better than anybody else is the answer that's always right when you're in small group. When you don't know the answer, what do you say? It's Jesus. It's just Jesus. If anybody deserved 
to be at the top of the pyramid, I think it's Jesus, if anybody deserved to have everybody coming around him and for him to live in luxury on this earth, I think it's him. But yet when you read what Jesus did, he lived a life that was broken, that he was willing to go to the cross, not for his own sins, but for my sins, your sins, for the sins of the world. If anybody lived a life of delayed gratification, I think it's Jesus because Jesus realized that this earth is not all there is. In fact, here's what it says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse three, it says, consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Verse two says this, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith for the joy that was set before him, delayed, it's out there somewhere, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. If there's anybody that lived a surrendered life, it's Jesus, Philippians two verses six through eight says, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to, but instead he gave it up. He gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave. He was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and he died a criminal's death. And so as we think about this idea of brokenness, this idea of delayed gratification, this idea of living from a place of surrender, that's the example of Jesus. And that's our prayer this morning. And that's our prayer for this whole teaching series is that we would be a people that take these three foundational things and we begin to live them out. And so this morning, I wanna pray for us. And even if you're watching online, I wanna pray for you as well. But I wanna ask you this question. Has there ever been a moment that you've been broken over your sin? Has there ever been a moment that you've truly said, God, I can't fix this myself? Has there ever been a moment that you set aside your creature comforts and surrendered your life to him and said, Jesus, I can't, but I know that you can. And as best as I know how, I ask you to step out of heaven and step into my heart and save me. I surrender to you. If that's never happened, I invite you this morning to do that. I invite you to find the blessed life, the good life by surrendering to him. But at the same time, I know in a room this size and with people watching online as well, there's a lot of people that would say, of course I know him. But my question is, do you know him? Are you seeing these fruits being displayed in your life? And if not, maybe this would be an invitation to say, Jesus, help me to come back to you and follow your example. So I'd love to pray for us. Would you stand very quietly, very reverently? And let's pray together this morning. This morning, if you're part of you're here to say, man, I'm not sure that's ever happened for me. I'm not sure I've ever surrendered. I wanna invite you to pray this part of the prayer with me. Dear Jesus, I know I can't fix it myself. And I know that my sin separates me from you, but I believe you died on the cross for my sins. And I believe you're alive today. And as best as I know how, I ask you to forgive me of my sins and save me. Become the leader, the Lord, the boss of my life. If you're a believer, if you know Christ personally, maybe you just begin to ask him, Jesus, would you look into my heart today? God, would you assess how well I'm doing and living the way that you modeled for us to live? God, would you replace selfishness with selflessness? 
God, would you replace my desire for immediate instant gratification to realizing that this earth is not my home? God, would you help me to loosen the grip I have on my life and totally surrender all, everything to you? It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Before we head out, I just want to ask Zach and the team to lead us just for a moment. That maybe in this moment you need to pray, maybe in this moment you need to sing, but would you allow this moment to be a moment where God drops out of our heads and into our hearts this great truth? Let's lift this up together. All your grace, suffering washes over me. sing this out. When I was in youth group, I heard a pastor one time describe, he said, one day we're going to get to heaven. And one day there's gonna be this giant screen in heaven and God's gonna show every sin you've ever committed on the giant screen. Did any of y'all just shudder like I did? And I know he had great intentions, but man, it scared the fool out of me. It's like, what in the world? And the thing is in scripture, you don't find that anywhere. You don't find that that's gonna happen. But if it were gonna happen, if there were a giant screen in heaven, I don't think God would show all of our sins and mistakes and scars, but if he was gonna show anything, I really believe he would edit down our lives to a 30 second clip. And he would show every time we came from a place of brokenness, God, I need you. And he'd show every time we lived a life of delayed gratification to say, man, I know that the one who knows me best knows what's best. So I'm gonna trust him, I'm gonna trust him, I'm gonna trust him, I'm gonna live his way. And he'd show us every time we lived a life of surrender. Why do I think that? Because at the end of the day, God wants us to look so much like his son. He wants us to look like Jesus. And that's my prayer for me. And that's my prayer for us today, that this would be a week that we turn the pyramid upside down in our lives. Instead of trying to work our way up to the top, we'd get underneath and say, God, I desperately need you. Help me to live from this. We love you guys. I hope you have a fantastic week. And I hope you'll join us next Sunday as we continue this teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Love you guys. Have a great rest of your day.